Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 129th show. So today we welcome Diana Jones, author of Leadership Levers. I love this book. I think every leader should read this book uh, and certainly aspiring leaders. Uh, I really like the stories and the in-depthness that you went into and it was very substantive. So uh, congrats on this book. So Diana, why don't you give us a little bit about your professional background? Well, Mark, thanks for having me here, and um, hello to all your viewers and listeners. It's wonderful to be here. I thought with my background, I'd talk about um, turning points, really, because there's like at least five different uh, themes in my background or threads. And first, I mean, I headed out from college and became an educator in a high school, and after two years, I had a program that was uh, everyone in the school, 1,000 kids were involved and um, they advertised for a head of department and I was doing that job and um, but was told I couldn't apply because I didn't have six years experience so being completely idealistic um, I resigned and traveled and because I live in New Zealand which is uh, a long way it's in the Pacific closest land mass is Australia next closest is Antarctica um, one of the things New Zealanders do is travel. And so I traveled up through uh, Kathmandu into India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and Turkey with a group of eight. There was a Scotsman, an Italian, two Australians, and two Canadians, and me. And um, I had a few adventures, as you can imagine, and then traveled up through to England and found many of my friends and colleagues were actually in jobs as teachers or architects or dentists, and I decided I wanted to keep moving. So I went down through Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, then traveled back through Greece, and then what's now Croatia, back um, towards England, and then went to the States. Became a, a camp waterfront director in um, Woodstock. So, so I decided that that was that was very influential on me as a professional because I learned that I was quite self-directed, intuitive, could could either blend in or stand out if I needed to. And that was really helpful. And I came back to New Zealand and I um, taught at a college, we call it a university here, so Victoria University in Wellington. And the area was the development of theory and its application and practice. And my role was as a academic supervisor to graduates. And so I got to work alongside a number of the chief executives in our city as our students did practical placements over a six-month period. And I learned a lot about how adults learned and what developmental experiences were and became very interested in that side of life. And the chief executives would often ask me, um, 
what did I see happening in their organisations? You know, why were people stressed? <laughs> Being um, young and highly opinionated, I'd let them know. And then I thought I needed to learn about how to make these observations. And so I trained in an area uh, called psychodrama, which is kind of like usually a therapeutic methodology. Um, it's a learning method. And I found I spent thousands of hours in groups and uh, learned a lot about how groups work. And from there, I took a job as a program director and course director in a month-long, if you could believe this, month-long leadership development programs where senior executives would actually leave their companies and families and be residential for a month. And I was um, the person leading that program, which I completely redesigned so that it was uh, interactive and participative. So it went from being lectures to people participating because I'd learned a lot about how people learn and the importance of peer relationships. So those were kind of the main influences. And then, so why did you um, write this book? Why did I write this book? Well, I wrote this book because my clients were senior leaders, leadership teams. Um, um, I saw that they were in a lot of angst and um, not being able to lead groups. They didn't understand group behavior and they didn't understand what the levers were that to create participation. So they'd see a big gap between themselves and their groups. So I decided to write what I knew about working with groups and the nature of forming quality relationships between the leaders and the participants and then among the participants themselves. That's really formative. So I wanted leaders to find it easy. I wanted people to love going to meetings. I wanted uh, leaders to love working with people. So that's why I wrote the book. So um, what global leader, political, business, education, or sports do you admire the most and why? Well, Mark, when, you, when I saw this question, I'm just going to, um, I might have to cough. A lot of people come to mind. So naturally, uh, people like Jeff Bezos, mm -hmm. uh, Mary Barra, uh, they naturally come to mind. World leaders, Vladimir Zelensky from Ukraine, extraordinary under excruciating uh, context that he's leading in. And I also think of Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's like longevity, relevance over many, many years, extraordinary person. But when you ask me this question, um, I think more of Amanda Gorman, who's a very young American poet, and her ability to articulate vision for a nation and for a world using words at a time where um, there's a lot of criticism, a lot of uh, ugly language being used, I think is inspirational for us all. And her capacity to overcome a uh, speech difficulty as a young woman um, her ability to speak to thousands or millions at a time is quite extraordinary. So I think we're hearing a new voice. So she, she, I would think, is one of the emerging leaders that I, I find extraordinary. It's funny we're lucky you to have her in the world. It's funny you should name well, a poet. And by the way, her books are sitting right in my living room, right uh, uh, next to the couch I watch all my sports in. Uh, yes. So, and I think I thought she was extraordinary and brilliant. 
Uh, so, oh, but it's funny you would name a poet as a leader. What what made you think of her as a leader? I see all the others. Uh, her capacity to communicate to many people that she doesn't know, and to influence many people that she doesn't personally know, is a is a leadership quality that's uh, needed in our world right now. So that that's one of the reasons. The fact that she's very young and she's made herself relevant in our world is quite extraordinary. It's different um, from a yeah. Uh, I also expected you to name um, the girl from Sweden who is always talking about the environment, uh, Greta Sternberg. Yes, well, another extraordinary young person, and, um, and and she she's like Fauci. She she's able to speak against leaders and what's happening in the world in a way that people will listen. So it's it's uh, another extraordinary capacity in a very young person. Leadership has changed over the last 50 years from like Emperor King to servant visionary concierge. Um, there are all types of leaders. What skill sets today's leaders need to succeed? Because it's really changed. I'm 61 than when I entered the workforce. It has changed dramatically. Well, our social world has changed. And so, of course, leadership needs to change with it. And so from being able to be quite authoritarian and do as I say, um, people don't want to do that anymore. Um, and we've had we've seen many different ways of how the world functions and how different countries in the world functions and how different businesses function. So of course leaders have to change. But one, one of the central things that I'm writing about in my book is that instead of uh, knowledge, or not instead of, I, that's, I've made a mistake there, I don't mean that, but as well as knowledge and expertise, Leaders need to have a capacity to have relationships, and that relies on their ability to self-disclose, which means they're able to talk about themselves and uh, how they think and feel about things. But that becomes uh, makes them much more relatable. And they also need to be able to invite people to participate. So leaders are not the only ones that have all of the knowledge and information. The people they work with have an enormous amount of wisdom and it's a leader's capacity to be able to tap into that and utilise it and bring it forward. So that's the central difference and it requires a uh, leaders to have a capacity to have relationships, whereas before they could be much more clinical, rational and logical. That was the biggest myth in leadership um, that's ever been in the world, that that was um, of high value. It's a value, but not that high. Um, throughout the book, you write about emotional connections. How does a leader do that without overstepping or appearing soft or crossing the line from friend, peer to boss leader? Well, th this is a great question. <laughs> I'll give it. I'll give my best shot at responding simply. I think. But there's one thing in your uh, question that I would go against and that actually leaders do need to be able to have peer relationships with staff like, and not to be just the authority or just the expert. So they need to be able to speak frankly with staff. The, the area of being friendly is very different from being friends. So it's really essential that leaders are personable and are able to have a friendly approach so that, so that people will relate to them. 
But as you say, crossing a line, crossing a line means um, they make a relationship personal when it doesn't need to be. Like it, it's um, it's inquisitive, it's not wanted. Um, so there's a lot of qualities in there that I think leaders need to learn to have relationships and how they do it. So their skill sets, as I said, are around self-disclosure and also finding out um, stories of others, like the people around them. And throughout the book, and I think as we, you and I talk more, we'll find out what that actually means. So the skill sets are much more to do with relationships and influencing people and being influenced by people, as opposed to being the one, only one who knows, the only one that's got the expert knowledge or the content. So it's a, it's a much more to do with the nature of mutuality. Well, I think the dynamic between the employer and employee has changed so much because of technology that, you know, when I grew up, you worked for the local company, one that you could drive to. And now you can be working for anybody in the world. And so hence the company in Philadelphia that doesn't make you happy, you can be working for a company in New Zealand and working from home, doing whatever you need to do for them. And it's just not computer program. It's a, a variety of things. So employers now have to take that into consideration, right? I mean, they have to, they don't have um, that leverage that they once had in terms of few jobs in a, in a particular geographic area, you know, with the exception of somebody who has to physically do something in that geographic area, like, you know, delivering milk or whatever. It is quite an extraordinary world that we're in now. It's a, um, but we're right in it. The last two years has has really brought us right into the electronic world where people can be like, I'm here in New Zealand, you're there in Philadelphia, your listeners are probably all over oh. the States and all over the world. So, and here we are together, like it's as if we're in two places at once. And it's it's learning to do that, but it's also learning how to have personal relationships and make that emotional connection, which which it doesn't happen on logic and information. It's, that is not. It's, it's it's what I'm writing a lot about in the book, and I think we'll get to this in more depth as we talk, is that people, when they get together personally, talk about quite different things than what they talk about when they're in a business meeting. And I'm suggesting that we bring that capacity inside our business meetings and that format inside our business meetings from time to time and so that people do get to know one another and do get to make a personal connection. Like a lot of people have relied on the vision of the company to create the personal connection. And that works a lot in a lot of industries, particularly if you're in the health sector or um, if you're working in an area that you're really passionate about. Of course, that happens. But if leaders want to influence people in direction, they do need to have personal relationships with people that really people have a connected emotionally with, with the leader and with one another, that those yeah. people become important to one another. This goes along with this, uh, what you're talking about now. You write about formal and informal leaders. Does choosing one over the other depend on the industry, geography, region, or demographics of the organization? And how does one know which one to choose? Well, one does not choose. One, <laughs> one needs to know how to work with both. So both formal and informal. 
So naturally, the formal leadership capacity is your identity as a leader, like the role you have in your organisation, and that's to do with your decision authority. So, and that that can't ever be underestimated. But informal relationships are based on completely different criteria. They're based on highly personal uh, criteria. Like I have a, and I, in my book, I talk about um, the informal network of relationships, and that's based on what's called psychosocial criteria, which is such as trust, care, insight, helpfulness. Or criticism. And so these kind of things draw people to one another and the connection is made. And often that's when people share, like, you know, if you go out to a team dinner or have a, a personal conversation, you're often talking about family or life experiences that you've had. And that's what creates these informal networks of relationships. And so leaders actually have to function with both and if they're not someone who is actually um, easy with a lot of relationships, they have to know people who are so that they get the organisational intel and get the feel of what's happening in their organisation and know how things that they're deciding are landing. Um, they became become much better informed when they work with the informal network of relationships. You don't think it matters, well, a couple of things. One, you don't think it matters um from society to society like in china uh and especially asian culture they're very much more formal uh than we are and the way they socialize in a business like in south korea it's, it's um socializing after work by going to a bar and doing karaoke and some other types of things hence how they kind of connect but every one of these societies is different and i kind of would think that also from an industry perspective it might be different as well in terms of communication. So do, do you see a lot of differences or is there a way for people to take one industry to, from another and, and embed those learned lessons into their own industry? I, I think it's what, what works. In different countries, there are very different uh, qualities and different ways of doing things. That, and, but I think the the electronic world has has sort of given us a shared orientation. Like I think, um, so it is learning what works for your business and what works for your people. But I know um, in our country, and I think in your country, the idea of inclusion and being valued are more at the forefront than perhaps in some other cultures. That's That's right. And I think what I'm talking about works well probably in western cultures yeah yeah i, I think, know i agree um, with I that i think it could work it could work well in other countries but it's you know for some people what i'm talking about is saying relationships are important those who value logic and rationality they won't agree yeah and hence i kind of fall into that one you write about uh, you write that many leadership teams have boring or irrelevant purposes how does a leader? Uh, how does leadership ensure against this when there are so many important purposes that are boring and uninspiring? Well, um, I think it's lazy for any leader to re leading a group or an organisation that has got a boring purpose. I just don't think that exists. I don't, I don't think that exists. 
I mean, some of the leadership teams I've worked with, um, like one in the local authority. So it was quite a um, significant group of people. And the staff thought the leaders were were boring, out of touch. And it was quite a technical administrative um, role they had, but very central to the functioning, like a, a, a regulatory function inside a local authority. And um, the leaders in that particular group wanted to dramatically change that perception and the experience of people working in their organisation because they do culture surveys and they were down low, 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 you know, and everyone was saying, you've got to do something about it. So this particular leader and her team decided to. So they developed a purpose where they said, um, the people who work in our team love the work they do and love working here. Now, that meant they had to radically change how they work together and how they work with their staff. And over a period of four or five months, they did this and they actually created this shift. And this team became, they they began to love working in the organisation. Their relationships with clients were quite different. The speed of their transactions, like they became much more rapid, much more relevant. It just sort of made a significant difference. So I don't I don't go along with this idea that um, it's acceptable to have a boring purpose for any group. It's just not acceptable. And people are creative enough to, to generate a relevant purpose. Well, like, let's say that you're a trash collector or, you know, you're, um, you know, uh, gardeners mowing lawns. How do you, how do you make that exciting for people? Or do you tell them that the per, you know the overall purpose and and what that means to the community that they're in? Well, you take the garbage collectors. Like I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. But if you have a purpose, it's like we clean up your mess. You know, like um, a lot of people would find that very attractive. You know, like we're the ones that clean up your mess, or. It, like it's it's not a difficult thing to create an exciting and inspiring purpose. You could add, we clean up your mess with class, or <laughs> you know, like there's all sorts of things that you can do that people that um, and you'd find that those people who do that work, they'd be able to come up with something that is really relevant to them and their clients, and and makes that business successful. It's important to remind them why it is important, right? Like I live in a condo in Philadelphia, and I remind that I always thank all the maintenance people for the job they do. And I say, you have to realize if you don't do a great job, my building looks like crap. And hence people don't want to. So the fact that you do a great job makes people want to come and visit me, want to come to the building. People want to buy into the building. So what you do is really important for all of us, Mm. not just sweeping up dust. I think there's been an example here in New Zealand recently. There's been big floods and a lot of the roads have uh, crashed. And some of the, uh, so there's major repairs and it means uh, traffic stopping. And the the people working on the road have been uh, encouraged and have worked this out themselves, I think. They wave and say hello to every driver that comes anywhere near them. And it just creates a, like a much more... Uh, accepting environment of what's happening like everyone's pressured everyone's stressed by it but having some friendliness and interaction makes such a 
difference to the people who are involved. So I, I just don't go along with this idea of boring purpose at all. I think it's it's leaders' responsibility to either create one or to work with their team to generate what what has meaning for their team. Yeah. According to the book, uh, you said groups should focus on outcomes and not content. Isn't that obvious? And can a leader guard against the latter? It is obvious. And so many leaders don't do it. <laughs> they do rely on their content. They do. And of course, they know their content. But it's impossible for any leader to communicate everything they know. Um, it's, but if they relate to the outcome and the benefit to the organization, the benefit to clients, the benefit to staff, all of those things, if they relate in, in that territory, they're going to get buy-in. They're going to get people, people will see the meaning of it. But if they are on the receiving end of knowledge and information all the time, they're going to be overloaded. They're not going to have a chance to remember half of it, quarter of it, a third of it, a fraction. They really want to know what they can do to help facilitate the development of the organization or the development of the service or the improvement of the service. So people go in the wrong direction when they focus on content, when they focus on benefits and how the condition of the organization or the service or uh, benefits to clients, how, how that will improve, then you're in the right territory. Yeah. You wrote when uh, working on projects and having strategy sessions, it's imperative to involve people on their terms. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that, gosh, it's such a good question. Um, what I mean by that is that anyone who's involved in working with a group, sitting with you, it's like here today, there's an enormous amount of talent and experience sitting with with all of you who are sitting here with us today, like your knowledge and expertise and experiences that you have. Now, it's it's unwise of any leader to ignore that. And so how people are invited to participate becomes really, really important. And if leaders don't create uh, opportunities for people to really bring out their experience and expertise, they're going to get half-hearted, half-hearted responses. They're going to get half-hearted contributions. They're going to get left-field contributions. They're going to get boring contributions. But if leaders can really craft questions, I call this a process for participation and then creating an invitation. So if that is uh, the invitation is made that really taps into the experience and expertise of those present, you'll get a completely different uh, quality of contribution and the decisions that are made are much better. Most every person in business uh, work finds meetings are a waste of time. I mean, how many times have you heard that from your colleagues and everybody else? Uh, and, and the meetings are too frequent. They spend more time in meetings than they do. I mean, in an entrepreneurial environment, that doesn't happen. But for most other organizations, especially the larger, the more meetings that there are, you mentioned there are six principles to having a productive meeting. Can you tell us what they are and, and why you chose them? Well, what you've just said is the reason I wrote this book. There's no excuse for anyone to have a boring meeting. It's just, there's no excuse. Running a meeting is uh, a simple thing. If you focus on the first four minutes, 
um, you have a capacity to really influence what happens and how the how the meeting proceeds. And so what it requires is a shift, and the shift is from leaders being a meeting manager to actually being um, alert to behavioural qualities. And I do write about this um, in Chapter 7, quite in some depth, but I'll, I will talk about the six things, that if you do these six things in the first four minutes of every meeting, you're likely to have much greater engagement participation and people feeling that they want to contribute so I'm going to list these six things and um, Mark and I were talking earlier you and I were talking earlier and we'll have this as a, a handout so we'll send this to each of you so that you've you've got it in the format that you can use in, in any of the meetings that you uh, lead this is anything from a board meeting a community meeting like any business meeting, family meeting that you have, if you use these principles, um, you will you can actually shape the behaviour of the group. So the first thing is to have an inclusive welcome. That's very, very simple, like hello, everyone. That works. The second is to be appreciative. And so you say thank you, thank you for coming. The third thing is really central to being the leader in the setting and it's that, that you start with an I statement so rather than saying it is good to see you all here you say I am pleased to see you all here or I am looking forward to our meeting so using the word I really shifts uh, people's orientation so just with those first three things that allows people to arrive to settle in to know that they're welcome and to know that you're the leader. So they're, they're symbolic, but they're very important principles. The, the next, the fourth principle is that you're appreciative of uh, those who are there. So it, it might be uh, something as simple like um, all of you are bringing your experiences and expertise to our conversation today. Something as simple as that, but acknowledging that it's not just a bland group of people sitting in front of you. From there, and this is this is strange because this is like the fifth thing that you might do, the fifth principle. We're still in the first few minutes of a meeting. And the fifth thing is either the purpose of the meeting, like why on earth are we together, or the outcome by us having this meeting. And this is a great failure of so many meetings is that those things are never clear or very, really clear. So the outcome is that we've established, we've consolidated, we've decided. So it's actually an action we'll have clarified. So um, actually saying what the purpose is, what the outcome is. And then the next thing is the process for participation. So people know um, how they're going to participate. So in this session, in our conversation now, um, you've made an invitation that people, people can put their questions in the chat. And so um, knowing what the process for participation is is really important to people. Otherwise, they're just going to sit there probably out to lunch in their mind, thinking about what they're going to do next, thinking about what they're going to do in the evening. So to get people present in the meeting, you have to create these conditions for them to participate. So those are the six things. If you do those six things, you'll radically change how people participate in your meetings. 
Yeah, and they all need that. And I like the idea of stating the purpose before the meeting even starts and letting people know what they should be thinking. I don't think I ever hear anybody ever state the purpose of the meeting. You just know there's a meeting and then there's an agenda, but not exactly what are we trying to accomplish here. Um, could, you please, could you please talk about the concept of psychological social atom and how that impacts working with people? What is that? Ah, well, this, this is a um, in the book. Let me just see if I can. I've just put the book here. Um, in the book, I'm talking about the uh, behavior a lot and influences of behavior. Now, if if you um, there's sort of eight criteria. It's the people you have around you that create your psychological security, basically. And if you don't have these people based on these particular criteria, you will tend to be cynical, defensive, aggressive, the sort of qualities that are unhelpful in business relationships. So this comes out of the work of Jacob Marino of the 40s to the 70s. Um, it comes out of the work of Carl Hollander and of Anne Hale. So, and it talks about the uh, criteria that you need um, with people around you. So, for example, who do you confide in? Who confides in you? Who would have your best interests at heart if they see you're not going so well? So, those are three of the criteria. Another is who helps you see the funny side of things. Now, some people will have only one person fulfill all those criteria. And so they become quite isolated and not so open to learning. And so in order to retain a sense of organizational and personal vitality, it's very important to have keep refreshing your psychological social atom. And I think what happened during our lockdowns is a lot of those relationships got broken or became less available to us. And it, it's created, I think, quite a lot of social problems in, in our organizations where people have lost their sense of connection. So being conscious of who is in your social atom and the criteria for that are really, really, really important. Yeah. When, uh, when you have a group meeting, you mentioned it's easy for people to go from being willing collaborators to warrior-like behavior, uh, and, I can, and I've seen that happen. Uh, what, is it, what is that, and do you make sure, and how do you make sure that doesn't happen? Because well, you it make becomes sure it combative. Yes, it's, it's like when people feel uh, ignored, overlooked, disregarded, devalued, they'll fight. They'll fight to get attention and they'll do it in a whole range of ways. So um, if, you're, if you're not conscious of creating an environment of participation, inclusion, and being able to hear from a number of people, um, they will want to fight you. And it's as simple as that. It's just, it's like these, it's stressful for people to be ignored. It's stressful for their talents to be overlooked. It's, it's not acceptable to them. So they'll find ways of fighting back. So that, that's the dynamic that gets created. But if you use those six principles I talked about and you become, instead of a meeting manager, you become like a talent spotter. You become like a conductor of process. You become a crafter of really uh, uh, powerful questions, 
uh, you create invitations and you become like a ruthless meeting manager. But it's you're not just a technical bureaucrat running through an agenda and uh, you become much more of a, um, a facilitator of interaction. They're d- different qualities, quite different qualities. You're right, because yeah. a lot of leaders end up dictating to people and just want them to rubber stamp it. But the whole idea of using all the brain power in the room is to pull out, um, get them to give you their best ideas and, yes. and, and direct opinions and pull it out of them as opposed to them feeling like they're just there to listen to you pontificate as the leader. Yes. Yeah. Uh, why did you write about the importance of uh, parenting approaches when it comes to leading meetings? <laughs> From just, just the very thing that we've been talking about, that when, like we're all, all highly talented and a lot of skills and capacities which we develop over time, but when people are under pressure, when the chips are down, people revert back to what's called coping behaviour. And... Um, and that's related to, often it's related to how people were around dinner tables. So meet, meetings become like the dinner table, as it were, and how behaviours, uh, whatever the behaviours were around the family din- dinner table. Like it's, it's, they're quite simple dynamics, but they, we see them repeated again and again. I've seen highly experienced leaders shout at one another. I've seen... Uh, people kind of almost knock one another out with their, you know, like an exocet missile coming across the table. And these are peers who have worked together on on um, extremely important national level projects. Um, so behavior deteriorates. How do you get around it? By talking about and developing relationships with people, by having informal relationships outside of the meeting where you discuss important matters, yeah. Uh, leaders face a variety of situations where difficult conversations about personnel that have to be moved out, change in leadership, and ultimately letting people go. It's always an ugly situation you have to deal with. When is the right time to have uncomfortable discussions? You talk about that in the book. The right time is to have them um, as soon as they arise. Like, if there's a tendency to put them off, always something bigger will come in on your agenda, something more important. So it's, it's, it's making, it's warming up as a leader to know that uncomfortable and difficult conversations are your basket. That is your life's work. If you don't have those conversations and if you don't raise the things that you're concerned about, you won't ever have people understand how you think and feel about important things. And you become invisible, basically. So uh, my view is um, be prepared for those. And I think I talk a lot in the book about being thoughtful about how, how you have those conversations. There's no need to come in like with the fist. That being able to have those conversations in a personable way become very important. And some people need to learn how to do that. So it's it's not necessarily something that's innate that it is possible to learn how to have a difficult conversation. But if you avoid those, you're you're not going to achieve what you want. You're not going to be satisfied as a leader. You're not going to build relationships. The number of people that I know that have had and have those difficult relationships are highly successful leaders. It's just people trust them. 
that they'll work with what's important in the organization. I think you're right. Uh, I often hear people say that when the leader's not willing to have those hard uh, discussions, regardless of what that is, then they lose faith in the leader. And because they feel like they're too Faith soft. And respect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if they lose that respect, then it undercuts everything they're trying to accomplish uh, in the organization. A lot of people feel like, oh, he's kept this person too long in the organization. And yeah, they gave him every chance, but yet you still have him here. What don't we know about this? But they're afraid to make that move. They just, yes. You know, and a lot of people just want to be popular. And that's not the job of the leader. Well, I, I think that thousands of hours, and I, I've seen it in my work, thousands and hours of wasted with emotional angst about having these conversations. And most leaders I know, once they're having them, they realize they, they, it is a conversation and they discover, they discover a lot of things. And, um, they also discover and realize what's important to them, and when when they when they must put the business first, and when the, when it's time to take in personal considerations. So it becomes a human interaction. They are difficult. That's why they're called difficult conversations. But just because mm-hmm. it's difficult, doesn't mean to say that they are avoided. Yeah, of course. In fact, they must not be. It's, yeah, they're not doing business. anybody it's any favors. It's, yeah, and that's right. just like yeah. personal relationships. You yes. have to have that or it festers or you don't or everything goes sideways on you because you haven't had that. What strategies and tactics should leaders use to make sure everyone on a team feels they're being heard and respected while maintaining authenticity? Because there are people who will just sit in the meetings and not say anything because that's just their personality but yet they have a lot to offer and then they're frustrated that nobody actually asked them their opinion. So how do you go about well, doing that and be authentic, you know, not just look like it's bullshit that you've, uh, the way you've asked them. I think crafting the question to invite participant participation becomes very important. Like these two areas in the first chapter, I write a lot about self-disclosure. And I talk about, um, I'll just get it here. I have the book book here. Mm-hmm. And I talk about three levels of self-disclosure. And while I'm talking to leaders here, I'm also talking to participants in meetings. And um, the first level of self-disclosure is quite is simple. I talk about three levels. It's, it, the first is simple. The second is deeper. And the third is unguarded. Now. A level of self-disclosure is like, I might just say to you, Mark, I really appreciate the thought that you've put in behind and the depth of research that you have behind your questions. Like that, that's a simple dis- self-disclosure and you understand something from me and probably I've tapped into something that you are good at, I think, and have as a talent. Now, now a lot of leaders don't do that. They do, They don't convey their appreciation in any way Um, it can be something simple like I like the way you do that and so and then there's there's different levels of self-disclosure now it's very important that team members are able to do this too they might say I'm I'm uncomfortable in the direction that this is going the leader might say tell us more and so there's a there's a conversation generated 
Now, this means that you can't have just a, a, a classic, uh, we've got five minutes to discuss it, that's it. Like it requires engagement. Um, I talk about the book about an invitation, like an invitation to participate. And it means the questions that people are asked when they're discussing anything in the group, the questions are thoughtful and really tap into the talents of the people. Right, uh, yes, I could think of an example, but I, am I making myself clear here? Yes. Mm -hmm. Good. <laughs> so you write that too many leaders rely on their ego and intellectual ability to contribute ideas and opinions on decision-making. Why is it important for leaders to utilize their instincts, intuition, and trusted relationships along with imperial data? Uh, and most CEOs are very data-driven. You also suggest using continuum-based decisions when you're talking. When, what are you talking about here? Okay, so there's, there's two different things here. One is the continuum-based decisions, which perhaps I'll talk about that first, and then I'll talk about this second area um, of using insight, foresight, um, and intuition and instincts. So. If, if there's a decision, I'll talk about a group that I was working with. So this is a senior leadership team needing to make a radical strategic uh, directional change. So we were working together and um, uh, they did make these choices about how, and that this was going to have a significant impact on the New Zealand economy. So once the direction had been decided, I chose to ask the group how confident they were um, that the decision they made was going to land them up where they wanted to land up in terms of the levers they had on the New Zealand economy. Were they, were they confident? Yes or no? And I've, you can see I've got my arms out here. So, And when I'm working with a group in person, we'll actually tape a line on the floor and the group members will stand on the line. Yes, I think that we will do this. No, I think that this is not going to get us where we really want to to be and when you have people um yes and no you get you just get quite a distinctive uh response but when you have people on a continuum you might see that a number of people are like 50 percent or 70 percent to the wards yes and that allows you to find out and you might have some people closer towards no so you find out that there's differences in the group and you can quite easily ask people is how come you're there on that line? How come you're near the no? What takes you up to the yes? What would get you to 100%? So you can actually have a conversation and draw out the nuances in the decision. And so I highly value those continua uh, for actually looking at the detail of a decision, which you can't just have it intellectually around the table. It just gets so boring because when you have a continuum and you physically see people standing on the line and where they are, they can see one another and they become influenced by one another. In this particular example, I was talking about the chief executive was right up at the 100% end. She was very satisfied that they'd landed on the right thing. But some of the group members were about 70 or 80%. And when I asked, well, how come they were there? One of them said they wanted to wordsmith the decision. Chief executive almost ran down to 40% of the decision because that was such an old behavior of these wordsmithing. 
But what happened in the next moment was someone said, well, what specifically? And within two minutes, they had recrafted to something that was, and everyone was back up at 100%. So it's it's a very active way of making decisions. But the, the second area of your question, I think I'm talking really fast here, so I'm hoping that um, what I'm saying is making sense. Yeah, sure. The second, the, the second part of your se- session is that you can have um, empirical knowledge and um, opinions, but actually what's important is, is leaders' insights about that and their intuition. They need to be able to say, this is the data, but I don't think it'll work because what I'm aware of is this. So if you don't have that second part of the conversation and you just use a knowledge and information, it's only half of what's needed. I mean, too many organizations have gotten very reliant on just data and and not from their own observations or their own gut instinct, because we know from Malcolm Gladwell studying this, that gut instinct counts for a lot in terms of making right decisions. Yes. And, and your gut instinct is a lot of times developed over a lifetime of experiences, which influences your gut decisions. But it shouldn't be just um, based on data. And we see, especially with younger people and organizations hiring lots of people who are um, numbers driven, that they rely too much on the data for making all their decisions, right? I think, I think that happens a lot in recruitment is that people don't go with their uh, their gut instinct, instincts and they don't necessarily check out uh, those instincts. And a lot of poor hiring decisions can be made uh, because of that. And it's, um, it's almost like, let's deal with the information. And then it's like, what do you really feel about this? It's that second area. And it's it's being willing to tap into that and having what some people would think would be out of control conversations. But this is where the gold is. These are where the gem is. This is where people's experience comes in, where their intuition comes in and where their thinking aligns with that. So it's going going to a deeper level. You write that that about senior leaders sometimes uh, saying little or nothing at a meeting and being viewed in a negative way. How can leaders appear to authentically be listening while seeming to be engaged by offering their opinions and insights? Well, this is, um, I've worked for many years with leaders who think sitting in a meeting (laughs) silently is acceptable. And as you say, when people look at them, they don't know whether that person's out to lunch. They don't know whether they think they know everything and so they've got nothing to contribute. So it's really important if you're a senior leader, like there's, there's, there's several elements to this. Some senior leaders over-contribute. They've got a view and opinion on everything. It's just not necessary. But what is necessary is if you're someone who doesn't or is very thoughtful about what you're going to contribute, if someone in the group, one of your peers or your colleagues or um, staff is saying something that you align with, it's very important you say that. I really agree with you. I endorse what you've said. I endorse what so-and-so has said. If you don't do that, you remain invisible. And so people don't know what you think and feel about what's important in the organization. 
And it's also mean not to align with peers when you do or not to say, actually, I have another opinion about this. So by not contributing and remaining silent, you create an invisibility in the group. And quite often, if that persists, it creates all these psychological conditions. Like people get a bit paranoid about people who don't talk and just take notes. They think, what are they doing with those notes? Who are they talking about with that stuff that they're finding? So letting people know what you think and feel is very, very important. It doesn't have to be a lot, but it is when you agree with people, you let them know. When you have another view, you let them know. Here's a question from the audience. What is your opinion of the overall level of emotional intelligence of leaders today? Wow, that's a wonderful question. I don't know what it is in the States at the moment. I haven't been to the States for a couple of years, so I'm not quite sure. I know that a lot of leaders in the States that I've worked with particularly are very interested in this area. Um, I know in New Zealand there's been a real emphasis in it, and I think people have developed the last 10 years, people have developed their emotional intelligence enormously, and I think in many organisations right throughout the world It is present. And I also think in a large number of organizations, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of old-fashioned, habitual, uh, irrelevant behavior happening in organizations. And But I think we're in an era where there's um, people are fighting to be heard, to be included, and to make significant contributions. So... It's a your question is very broad, and um, I'd like to know if I've gone anywhere near responding adequately to your question. No, I, I think you I think you have uh, responded adequately to it because it's a complex question, and emotional intelligence has become very important, as you said in the beginning of this interview, and the leaders that lack that emotional intelligence find it very hard to attract the smartest. Uh, brightest and hardest working people. Mm. And those people end up leaving the organ, leaving the organization. So now there's a lot more pressure on the leader than just knowing about the business or um, driving for profits. There's a certain expectation, or I'll just take my my skill set and go to somebody else who really does get it. Because how many times, you know, you looked at Steve Ballmer for 10 years at Microsoft. That was a dead 10 years. For that company, if they didn't have a great product that just kept churning cash, you know, somebody would have bought them out or or it had been long gone long ago. And now you have a leader who people feel is engaging and gets uh, gets <clears throat> values of the people in the organization. And hence, Microsoft is now admired again uh, in the overall scheme of things. So, I, and I think you you know you allude to that a lot in the book about what that takes. And you didn't use Steve Ballmer as an example, but I'm. Um, using it because we all know who he is. One of the most uncomfortable things for a professional is being new to a, a, a new team member. People really um, are, when they first come on board, they just don't know what to say or not to say. How can a leader make that transition smooth and positive when somebody joins the team so they don't feel like they have to either show themselves off or don't say anything because they're so new? But this is, is such an opportunity that 
when when new team members come in, it is such an opportunity to shape culture and to um, help the group function rapidly and to help the new person come in and get up to speed rapidly. And in the book, I specifically write about this on page 159, and I've called it the five keys to powerful introduction. So, and this is so often missed out. And when it's missed out, um, people just develop their relationship haphazardly. So to be systematic and anyone coming in, it's very simple. It doesn't take long, but if it's omitted, I think you lose such an opportunity. So I'm going, I'm going to read these five things. And the first one is obvious, like the person's name and their role. The second thing is that the leader would say as they introduce this person is the main impact they want this person to have. So that's really important. So it's kind of the leader's vision. What is the impact they want this person to have? The next one is the reasons why they chose this person. So it becomes really evident why this person is chosen over others and what they're bringing into the group. The next one is the three or four qualities or the experiences that the leader knows that individual brings to their work. So quite often people are left to do this for themselves and they're more than capable of doing it. But when the leader does it, there's a real acknowledgement of the talents that this person is bringing and the experiences that the leader sees as relevant to the group. And the, the fifth person is, is how they want people to work with this person. Now, if that isn't done, and if the leader's vision in those areas isn't shared, the relationships become haphazard and they might take months or years to develop. So just in a few sentences, leaders have got such a, a way of impacting how the group's going to function, how they include this new person. People already know a lot about the person from just what the leader has said. As I say, if it's not done, an immense relationship opportunity is lost. So, yeah. Um, what is emotionally based learning and what's, what's important for leaders to learn? Wow, this is such a big question. Okay, so you all will understand that uh, information creates knowledge. So let's look like information and got knowledge. So that's, that's um, I think we're all very familiar with that way of learning. Now, if you uh, consider someone in your inner circle, like friend or family, becomes ill or leaves, goes to another country, leaves the city, leaves, divorces, separates, whatever it is, that has an emotional impact. And that that is another sort of learning. So I think we we devalue that. We kind of keep it private. And it's that type of learning that is very important in organizations. Like leaders, if they are rude, critical, cynical, that has a very impact, big impact on people and they have an emotional response to it. They don't like it. In my terms, they move away. They build a wall. They, these things are emotional. So that's what I mean by emotional learning and understanding what your impact is on other people becomes very important. 
And I think it's when the question um, from Sky came in, that's what that that's what's being talked about is the emotional impact and really understanding that being able to understand how people experience you becomes very important so here's so here's the last question and we got like less than 60 seconds what skills is the leader of the future going to need that people want to follow like you know we've seen this transition in what leaders uh how leaders have to grow. But now we're looking at the next 10, 20 years and uh, the world has certainly shrunk a lot and we're all so intertwined and people are, are getting smarter. Like, you know, my kids are so much smarter than I was at their age. So what's it gonna take to be a leader in the future? What skill sets are they gonna need uh, to get people to follow them and even invest in them if you're um, an entrepreneur? Okay, I think there's three. One is that has always been present, and that's a capacity to have a vision to create a better world, better situation, better for your clients, better for your staff, so to create a future. The second is like being a map reader, the ability to read the terrain. And the third is having a way of navigating forward. So those are the three things that I think are essential, and they're only relevant if you do that in relationship to others. Well, Diana, thank you for getting up at five o'clock in the morning in New Zealand to speak to us today. Uh, Thanks the audience for also coming out and listening to you. You've got a terrific book, um, great insights and and things that I guess leaders of all ages should be reading because I feel even at 61, I'm still on a growth path uh, and Mm -hmm. that I'm still... I still got a ways to go, even though I'm 61 years old. So I kind of think every leader needs to look at that way. And hopefully folks are going to get your book and give it a lot of thought about what it really takes to be successful and and uh, get the most out of your people. Everybody, thanks for listening today. And um, Diana is going to send us some stuff that I can forward to all of you and share that will also help you in leading your organizations. Have a great day and a great weekend, everybody. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.